If you're visiting with us, we're looking at the Ten Commandments. And if we're going to make a difference, if we are going to make a transformational difference, then we absolutely must get the basics right. Now, I almost was going to ask Bridget to come and finish the sermon because exactly what she was talking about is what we're going to get into this morning. Now, last week you heard me talk about the Ten Commandments are all about God's desire to set us free. We looked historically about Egypt and how they were enslaved. God set them free, but they chose to live in slavery, even though they were free. The Ten Commandments, we have to understand, are from a father's heart. And his desire is for us to live free, and we cannot separate the law from the lawgiver. The first four deal with the relationship with God. The next six deal with relationship with others and ourselves. And God sums it up this way. Love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your body, and love your neighbor as yourself. As I said last week, the order is significant. And we have to get number one right before we get number two right. Now the first one was how many gods do we have? One God. Let's look at number two. Exodus 20 verse 4. Exodus 20, verse 4. Now, remember up to this point, it was what they call an oral society. They transferred everything via word of mouth and storytelling. So what's significant about these Ten Commandments, this is the first time anything is going to be written down literally in stone that they're going to carry with them. So this is the first written aspect of, of something that God has given to them. Verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath. Now, it's interesting when we read this, we sit there and say, well, we don't have those problems. We don't have little statues sitting around our house that we bow down and worship to. And for those that traveled and studied their cultures, we see idols all over their cultures more quickly than we do our own. In fact, as Americans, we live under the illusion that somehow we do not have the same problem with idols they do over there. And that's why we send missionaries, right? Because they have idols over there. And they need Jesus. Well, there's a problem. And the problem is when it comes to idolatry, if you talk to Christians abroad and ask them why they don't want to come to America. They'll say, well, your land's too full of idols. See, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But why is this carved image such a big deal? Why is this idolatry such a big deal? Why is this imaging beyond little statues a big deal? Well, remember we started out by talking about Genesis 1 and 2, and we are unique. We're made in whose image? God's image. And the word image means to mirror. Now, many of you got up this morning, and you looked in a mirror, and it was a sad moment. <laughs> mirror reflects what is there, not what we think is there or what should be there. And we were created in the mirror image of God. 
And while we don't mirror his physical attributes, we do mirror his goodness and grace. We mirror his forgiveness. We mirror his generosity. And of course, in the New Testament then, we're called the body of Christ. And so when you think about the church, it's not buildings, it's not programs, it's not how well we dress, it's not how well the band did, it's about people. And Christ is the head, and we're the body, and there's many parts, and some parts are seen, some parts aren't seen, but they're all significant. But the body of Christ is the visible representation of Christ to our world. Do we reflect his glory? So you see that we're not to worship images because we are to be his image. That's why this command is so significant. Now look at verse 5 of Exodus 20. He was going to say this. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. There's two things here. One is submission. We bow to things and we give them significance. They have the highest authority in our lives. The other thing then is we serve. And so you have to ask yourself, where do I spend my time? Where do I spend my money? What do I give my heart to, my mind to? You know, where are my hopes and dreams given over to? And when we're talking about these two things, about submission and service, you should not bow down to them or serve them. You should consider the word worship because that's what worship is. Now, if you're taking notes, I want you to put worship on one end of the spectrum and put idols on the other. And we have to ask ourselves then, if we're not going to bow down or make little images or give our lives to idols, what really is worship then? Now, there's danger in giving definitions. Because so often we define something and we miss very significant aspects of the thing we're trying to define. And we become what's called reductionistic. We reduce things down to our level. It's a little bit what Bridget was talking about, how she wanted to include Jesus into her life, but she still wanted control. We make Jesus in our image rather than Jesus making us in his image. And so we bring idols into our worship. And we reduce them around our preferences and agendas. And that's why in American culture you hear the word worship wars. You can go into any bookstore and you'll find book after book after book that addresses this. You see, for many people, worship has been reduced to 30 minutes or more before the sermon. They consider the music the worship part. Now, some are more generous, and they include the sermon saying, okay, we'll we'll say that the pastor preaching is worship too. But let me ask you this question. Do you think, do you really think that Christ died for an hour on a Sunday morning or a Saturday night? And see, what we miss is this whole idea of worship, whether we worship God or idols, is something we do 24-7. It's a lifestyle. But we reduce it down to things. I remember a lady was visiting us back at my previous church in Mannheim, and it's when we were worshiping in the gym. And, and she was there a few weeks, and she was off a few weeks, and she came back, and I got to talk to her, and she said, you know, She was, I I love your music here. I love your preaching. I love the mission. I love what you're doing in the community. But there's a church over here I like going to, and I just love the building. I sit there, and, and, you know, I, I feel close to God. 
She didn't care for the music or the preaching or anything else. She just loved the building. She ended up choosing the building over the mission. See, the difficulty is that we often worship the experience rather than Christ. So I'm going to risk giving you a definition that hopefully will expand your view of worship, but also expand your view of idolatry. Here's the definition. It comes from Harold Best. He wrote a lot of books about worship. Worship is acknowledging that someone or something is greater, worth more, and by consequence, to be obeyed, feared, and adored. Worship is the sign that in giving myself completely to someone or something, I want to be mastered by it. Worship is the continuous outpouring of all that I am, all that I do, and all that I can ever become to God. Now, I was sitting up in our recovery discovery class this morning, and what Jay was teaching, they understand this. It is absolute total surrender. If you only do part, you're not going to get there. Now, for those of us that don't consider ourselves worthy of that class, we refuse to deal with culturally acceptable addictions. That's a fancy word for idols. You don't need the little statue. You can worship a God of culture without having something on your dashboard. And so we have more difficult time with this. And so while we're dressed in religious clothing, we often default to the God of self. And what we then do is sprinkle a little bit of Jesus in our lives rather than clean house and let him take control. So here's the first principle that you have to understand this morning about what God is telling us in this command. Everyone worships all the time. If you're alive and breathing, how many are alive and breathing here this morning? Raise your hand. Okay. Those that aren't, you probably were in that class and you ate and it's about sleep time now. I warned you I'm going to call you out, so time to wake up. If you're alive and breathing, you are pouring yourself out for someone or something. So the question is not do we worship. It's what or who do we worship. It's either God or idols. It's that simple. And that's this command. If you're not worshiping God, you got some idol that you're bowing down to, that you're submitting to, that you're serving. You will give your life to something or someone. Now, again, it's very easy to read this passage, and we, we sit there and say, well, you know, those silly people. How stupid can they be to have all those idols and do all those stupid things? I mean, you know, they got all their gold jewelry together and formed this calf. and I mean, we would never do that. And you start saying to yourself, it's really good that I'm beyond all that. I'm more sophisticated and more educated. Hypothetically, if we could transfer one of those Israelis to present day, bring them into our culture. What would they say about our worship? Who and what? Take them to a football game. What do they see? Well, the first thing they see is we're taking our sacrificial animals and we're grilling them. Come and tailgate party. Then they see we pay the tithe to get into the temple. And when they get into the temple, it's pretty astounding, and, and it's packed, and there's dress codes, depending upon which idols you're worshiping. And, and they walk in, and people's hands are outstretched, worshiping their idols in the field. 
And have you ever noticed it's okay to do that in a sports stadium, but in a church, you get looks? <laughs> now, the more devout followers they see are painted faces, and they, they dance, and they cheer. Emotions rise and fall depending upon how good their idol is doing. In some ways, sport arenas are temples of our day. I have watched people submit, and I have watched people serve their sports. Now we take them from a sporting arena to a mall. You realize malls are temples of our day. We pay our tithes, our offerings to improve our lives, right? I mean, that's what you do when you study idolatry. You, you give over to this idol because they're going to improve your situation. So they see us in our malls buying, tithing our offerings, our money. So our image, our worth. So we're going to have a better life because we feel good about ourselves because we look a whole lot better. Until we get up in the morning and look in the mirror again. And, you know, in the malls, we can even eat sacrificial animals there. All for a price. Take them to our political arena. When you study politics in America, many times people that we vote for are what we call functional saviors, messiahs. The campaigns that are given, the money that's given. And if another God wins, we all sit there and say we're doomed, right? I got news for you this morning. If the person you vote for in your mind is going to save us, you will be very, very disappointed. Why? Because they're not Jesus. If they turn on our TVs, we have shows called what? American? And you know, somehow if somebody can sing and be on a stage and do really well, what do we do? We give them value in their voice. We do it with movie stars. We do it with a lot of celebrities. Even celebrity preachers. Somehow they are worth more because. You know, what we have in America is called a functional Jesus. People say, I love Jesus, but I want you, Jesus, to fit into my reality. And we take him and cram him into our gods. And that's exactly what we see the children of Israel doing when they were released from slavery they went into the desert, and it even got so bad at one point, what'd they say? We want to go back to Egypt. Man, we remember the good times. Here's the first lesson about idols. Idols make promises they cannot keep. Let me put it this way. If you worship idols, they will enslave you. If you worship the creator, he will free you. Idols promise things that only God can deliver. And so we, as a body of believers, as Jesus Christ, we need to tear down idols, we need to get rid of them, and we need to replace them. Otherwise, if we don't replace them with Christ, then just another idol takes their place. It was John Calvin, the theologian, said the human heart is an idol factory. And when we think of idols, we think of bad things, don't we? You know, idols in the Old Testament time were, were gods that they manipulated and paid off so that they could have whatever they thought they should have. And we have Christian versions of this. I'm thinking what's called the health and wealth gospel. If you live right, if you give enough, God will do what? He'll bless you. I got news. He's already blessed you with every spiritual blessing, heavenly places. 
If we do this, then God will give us this. That's idolatry. What I'm saying is anything can become an idol. I ran across this definition. I don't know who said it, but it wasn't me, but it it sounds good. Here's what it says. An idol is a good thing that becomes a God thing, which makes it a bad thing. An idol is a good thing that becomes a God thing, which makes it a bad thing. Let me use the illustration of marriage. I think one of the reasons why marriages fail today is idolatry. Anything and anyone that replaces Christ at the center of your life is an idol. And what we do a lot of times is we make our spouse our savior. They're supposed to fill this empty hole. They're supposed to make us happy. And we try to manipulate them to do what we want. So we will be happy. So we will be fulfilled. And we make them our God. Jonathan Edwards said this a long time ago in a sermon he preached on marriage. He said, if you idolize your spouse, eventually you will demonize them and hate them. Now in America... There are some predominant idols that plague us. Can you guess what they are? I mean, Richard Foster called them out in the 80s. In fact, the title of his book, he named the three idols. They made him change the title because they thought it was just too inappropriate. Tim Keller recently wrote a book, really what Richard Foster wrote about, talking about the counterfeit gods. And the three gods are this. They're power, money, and sex. Think about power. Success and achievement and position is the drug of our day. Think about money. How many times do you hear people confessing about greed? They confess a whole lot of things. Think about sex. Pornography is now a multi-trillion dollar industry, and it's not just for men. Pornography for women is one of the fastest growing aspects of pornography today. Marriage is shifting from a covenant relationship where it's kids, family, to one being defined by sexual orientation. And we're reducing marriage to a sexual romantic attraction. Let me give this illustration. Let me go back to money for a second. This is the one we think we have the least issues with. And again, through my 37 years of ministry, I've had people with all kinds of confessions. Very rarely does every, anyone ever come up and say, you know what, I have a heart of greed. I'm bound down to the idol of greed. They just don't say that. So let's talk about the biblical witness first. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, greed is idolatry. Can you be any more plain? I mean, Paul names it. In Luke 16, no servant can serve two masters. He will either hate the one or love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot... Serve God and money. The Pharisee who loved money, the person who worshiped God, the person who prayed three times to God, the person who gave their life over to God, but it wasn't the God of all creation, it was the God of their creation, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. Now, if you don't believe me, realize that money is one of the most controversial subjects in churches today. Why? Because it's an idol. This subject has got more pastors fired. It actually trumps music. You preach on money, people walk away angry. Why? Because it's one of our idols. We've given our hearts over to it. It drives us. We want to control it. 
From a secular standpoint, when the economic meltdown hit in year 2008 and 2009, article after article after article said that we live in a culture of greed. They named it. How many years later, with $18 trillion in debt, why are we in debt? Because we want what we cannot afford. But let me tell you this morning, does greed deliver what it promises? Here's what it promises. If you have enough money, you will have safety, security, and happiness. Does it deliver that? No. What it does deliver is anxiety, fear, and never having enough. Greed always keeps us focused on what someone else has. And we miss out on the opportunities of what God really designed us to be. I remember, long story how I got into Georgian College, but the president didn't want me there, but then we became good friends, and I was sitting down with him one day. So I went, you know, he risen to the top of his profession. His wife also was working in another college, risen to the top of her profession. And here's what he said to me. He goes, you know, he goes, my wife and I have achieved everything we thought we would dream. Position-wise, money-wise. He says, we got more money than we know what to do with. We have vacation homes, everything else. He says, but you know, when we lived back in Toronto in a little apartment, when she was working at a local hospital putting me through college and we were dirt poor, he says, we were a lot more happy than we are today. I thought, how true. See, our greed causes us to be miserable. And it's why on a Sunday morning we have a time of giving. The only way to break a hard heart of greed is what? It's hilarious generosity. We don't give to have God bless us. He's already blessed us. We give because we want to reflect his image of generosity. But here's what happens. Paul says in Romans 1.25, they worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. Now we can sprinkle a bit of Jesus in there. And we can go to church and we can read the Bible. But until we give ourselves over, We're not going to experience the kind of joy and peace that God has designed us to experience. Now, when we experience disappointment from our idols, there's four possible reactions. Here they are. One is blame the idol. And you know what we do then? We just trade them off for a better one. That's why a lot of people go from church to church to church to church to church because, you know, they can't find what they're looking for. Two, blame yourself. That's the whole self-loathing and shame. You know, just kind of cycling over and over again. We try to work our way out of that, and we try to prove ourselves, and we try to become, and we try to earn our way back into respectability. Three, we can blame the world. You've met a lot of these people. When they blame the world, they become hard, cynical, and empty. Four, you can focus your life on God. Why? Because he will set you free. Now, what does God say? Know what? Idols. Repeat it after me. What does God say? No idols. Why? Why does he desire to set you free? Why does he say, no gods and only worship me? Now, hear what I'm saying. The other eight we're going to study depend upon getting these two rights. Who we worship and how we worship are critical. We need the right God and we need to worship the right God in the right way. 
And Satan is more than glad to give you a counterfeit freedom. He is loved to do that. Why? Well, look at verse 5. For the Lord your God is a jealous God. Now let's go back to the marriage imagery again. Because Jesus is the groom. We're the bride. Uh, my wife and I sat down at a restaurant down along the Susquehanna in Wrightsville yesterday, last evening, and it was a beautiful night, and they were doing a wedding out in the yard along the river. Now, do you know what I didn't see? I didn't see when the bride was being ushered down the aisle by her dad that on her other arm she had an old boyfriend. Didn't see that. And man, on the day when your beautiful bride comes down the aisle, the last thing you want to see is her coming down with an old boyfriend, right? Christ is saying, with no idols, no other boyfriends. You got that? He's a jealous God. It's an exclusive love. Don't we all crave that? I mean, isn't that what we're looking for? Someone who will not run away from us? We all crave finding someone who will never leave us or forsake us. And that's Jesus. Look further in verse 5. Here's why. First, that he's a jealous God. He wants an exclusive love. Two, he says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Why? Well, when we worship God instead of idols, or we worship idols instead of God, we pass it on. Do you understand that you pass on slavery or you pass on freedom? Now, many of you here experience this very thing. I've talked to many, many children of alcoholics or whatever you want to label the parents as. And they say, I'm never going to be like that. I hate what they did. I hate that my dad abused my, my, my mom. I hate it, I hate it, I hate it. What did they grow up to be? They became up, they, they, they grew up to become the object of their affection. You see, hate is an affection as well as love. So who you focus on will determine what you pass on. So you understand the reason there's only one God and have no idols is because, first of all, he's a jealous God. But he second of all, he says, listen, your life you're going to pass on to somebody. What do you want to pass on? And idolatry will enslave you. You become addicted, perverted, and indebted. Martin Luther says, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that really is your God. Now let's look at verse 6, though, because here's the other why. The why is he's a jealous, he wants exclusive love. You pass it on, and he looks at the negative. But look at the positive. But showing steadfast love to thousands, and including that thousands of generations, just not three and four. You have a choice to pass on this kind of love to thousands of generations, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Let me put it down in practical language. Anybody here can break the chains of slavery. You can usher in generations of blessing. He wants to bless you. He wants to love you. In finality, it's all about Jesus. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And you cannot know the truth about ourselves and others without the truth of Jesus. We become like what we worship. And in America, we have three predominant idols. What are they? Power, sex, and money. Um, 
Tim Keller's book is great. It's called Counterfeit Gods, The Empty Promises of Money, Sex, and Power, and The Only Hope That Matters. Uh, book giveaway time. Who would like it? Okay, right there. Saw the hand first. Now, remember the rule. What's the rule? No, you can write in it, but pass it on. <laughs> pass it on. When I pass books on, let me tell you, they got a lot of writing in it. But that's okay. They're probably saying, why did Pastor Greg underline this line? You know, I've lived long enough, and I've seen things I wish I'd never seen. And I've heard things that I wish I could get out of my head. And I've seen the darkness of Satan when he enslaves people to false worship. I've learned the illusion of control where we take charge instead of yielding over to God. That's a trust issue. And I've seen that the biggest hurdle for many is the lies that are part of their, the lies that are part of their lives. Because idols give us distorted thinking and feelings. That's found in Romans 1 if you want to read it. And there's always people that are going to reinforce those lies. But we do what's found in Genesis 3 when sin entered our lives. We hide, we cover up, and we run away. And what we're trying to hide is much of the guilt and shame. Of course, our culture does what? We rename it, we redefine it. But in the silence of our lives, it's still there. And we do everything we can, but actually get rid of them. Now, let me say this. Guilt and shame are appropriate when they bring us to Christ. But after coming in a relationship with Christ, they are highly inappropriate. And we as a body need to be very, very careful how we use guilt and shame because so often we don't let people unlive their past. You know, one of my pet peeves is we do not define people by their sin. Oh, yeah, that person's an alcoholic or that person's a drug addict. No, they're not. They're a child, they're a son and daughter of the king. Okay, they had some issues here, but so did you. I wanted to say that a lot of times, but I never did because I thought I might lose my job. We all are sinners. We all have things, and, and Christ wants to wash us free from all that. You know, we try and figure out how can God love us after all, but he just does. And he loves us through his body as well. That's the flesh and blood. That's us. That's our calling. And you know, you have nothing to prove, and you have nothing to earn. And that's why it's critical when we walk with each other. That we don't default and live in idolatry. Grace threatens our idols. Mercy and love exposes our idols. And if we're honest, all of us are little control freaks that want what we want, when we want it, how we want it, why we want it. And you heard me talk about that last week. That is a great definition of slavery. But we put the word freedom on it. But here's the good news. Christ can free you. And when he does, you have nothing to prove to anyone. So enjoy the relationship and the journey. The bad news is sin will enslave you. The good news is God frees us in his son. The bad news is that Satan is called the angel of light, and he will try to convince you of his path. So the question I leave you with this morning is, don't you think it's time to live free? Amen? I'm going to call the band up. 
We're going to close with prayer and a song. Before they come up, anybody here want prayer for the whole freedom thing? They just, I'm not even going to put a category on this. You just say, you know what? Remember me this morning in closing prayer. Just raise your hand. Okay? Father God, I thank you that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Um, sorry that we don't get this. Sorry that we run after our own little worlds and our own little gods and we allow these things to capture our hearts and we end up in, well, we just end up in a big mess. Thank you that your grace and love frees us. I pray for those that raise their hands, that whatever they feel like they're enslaved to, whatever they wrestle with from their past, the lies of the present, the cultural icons and idols that we just so quickly go after, may you free them by the power of your spirit this morning because that's the only force that can free us. If we try to do it on our own, man, we're just going to end up back to where we were. I thank you for this opportunity that we can be here and in this hour worship. I thank you for the opportunity as we leave this place that we continue to worship. And Lord, thank you for blessing us. To you, all the praise and glory and honor goes, because you alone are worthy. And we pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And everyone said,